Hi, I'm Rachel Borthwick, and welcome back to Out of the Closet and Into the Pews. In our previous episodes, we've spoken with religious practitioners and scholars to understand what it means to study religion queerly. What we've wanted to understand is that queer emancipation is not a parallel line with secularity, because secular criteria rests upon values that are not neutral or rational. Thus, we've wanted to show, through speaking with scholars and religious practitioners, that secularity and queer liberation are not inherently aligned because societal values are chosen and enforced by those in power. And when values are enacted, they do not consider LGBTQ plus identities or LGBTQ plus identity holders are really the ones in control. We want to speak to activists to understand what it means for them to be liberated religiously. And in doing so, we want to analyze the role of religion in relation to social movements to have conversations about the roles of religious studies, queer theories, and gender studies. Today, to help me understand where we find the sacred in regards to activism is Malkaja Hoskins. Malkaja is a current student at Skidmore College. He is a junior and he's a sociology major. Malkaja, thank you so much for joining me today. Hi, I'm happy to be here. It's been um, great to like do the process of it all and finally have it like come to fruition. Yeah, I'm wondering, can you tell me a little bit about your story? How did you come into your faith, spirituality, or religion? And how did you navigate that in relation to your queerness? I feel like I've been in the throes of religion my entire life. Like when my grandmother on my mom's side is a Pentecostal preacher, I grew up going to Catholic school for like a majority of my schooling, only like from sixth to eighth grade was I not in a Catholic school and when I was like 10 my family converted to Judaism so it's been like I I think the messaging I got in terms of my relationship with religion was so chaotic um from like going to from Pentecostal church to like Catholic school and learning about like Catholic religion and Catholic religious practices and Catholic history and then um learning about Judaism and practicing Judaism and then learning about the Jesuits, I went to Jesuit high school. But when I was little, uh, I wanted to be a priest. I'm not sure if I told you that, but uh, yeah, I wanted to be a priest so badly. I was so vehemently, maybe that may not be the right word, but I was so strongly pulled or called to like religion. Um, and then to, 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 I guess I was drawn because priests are like, like, theatrical and, and orator, um, not orators, but you know, talkers. And I'm a talker and I'm theatrical and I'm like, wow, I feel validated and seen. Uh, and actually for my birthday, I wanted, what I really wanted for my, what was it? My like sixth birthday or something like that? Couldn't have been seven. Um, I want to, I would ask the preacher, I was like, can I give a sermon for my birthday? And he's like, yeah. I was like, oh yeah, yay. Um, but I didn't because my parents kept me home. I don't know why. Um, and maybe because they were nervous about like how I would do it, but I wanted to give it, give it on, um, jealousy. Cause I thought my older siblings were being like mean to me out of jealousy or something like that. I don't know. Something my deluded like six year old mind could think of, but I feel like as I got older and started to come to terms with my queerness, Okay, I, I, I want to say this much. I don't feel like my religion or like navigating religious spaces has like totally come at odds with my queerness. Like I feel like my relationship with like the universe and the creator and a God has been like, okay, if 
if I'm this way, then that that's the way it is. And like, I'll like, when I did get messaging about like negative things about queerness, I would just switch a switch on my brain and just like be empty had no thoughts. Cause I'm just like, I don't have time for this. Um, and this is not to, uh, what's the word, discredit or, or, or try to like dilute the anti-queer sentiment that is in religious, that is that can be often found in religious spaces. Cause I feel like I face that myself, but it is something that I had to learn to cope with really early on and then have had, I guess, tools and practices to keep that, to navigate that away from myself. But the other funny thing was, I wasn't Catholic, I'm queer. I would always end up doing the best in religion, religious classes. I would beat out the Catholics. <laughs> That's such a bad soundbite to get out of context. But I felt really vindicated um, in religion classes because like I did really well and I felt like my teachers understood me in a way and especially in high school, yeah. You talked a little bit about feeling that your queerness didn't come at odds with your religion or spirituality. Does for you, do you feel like incorporating your religion, faith or spirituality along with your queerness feel like a form of resistance um, against anti-gay sentiments or anti-queer sentiments? I feel like I'll, I'll, uh, at the crux um, of my like religious and spiritual practices has been love. Um, and at the crux of my queer identity and like queer praxis has been love and understanding love as something deeply, um, I and mean, as Bell Hooks says, love is like being profoundly political. So I guess that is sort of the bridging thing of using, if I'm understanding the question correctly. Yeah, I guess when we see specific groups whether that be religious or spiritual have anti-gay sentiments that maybe align with your religious or spiritual views does being a queer person of faith feel like a form of resistance against that for you would be the crux of my question i don't know because i don't feel like i i deeply associate i i i um i my practices, my current practice, like I don't think I align with any specific uh, religious institution now in my life. Um, if anything, I relate more towards my Judaism than anything else, but like my religious practices seem to be like an amalgamation of things. So I can't really think of it as like a resistance against one specific institution, but I'm thinking uh, about high school. And the question is my queerness as an act of resistance to religious spaces. Uh, yes, more so in high school, because I feel like that's when I really felt the pressures of, I guess, religion and potential anti-queer sentiments. Especially, I remember in high school, I'm not sure if I ever told you this, in high school, um, don't I love being the first at things, but like the, the first, <laughs> the first um, Jesuit school, I guess in the world, kind of, to have like any like programming that's like centering LGBT high school. Uh, it was LGBTQ history and culture week. And that was really, that was really something, especially for like a Jesuit Catholic single, excuse me, single sex school. Um, so that was a lot, but I didn't really think of it as something like 
oh, I'm like being deeply transgressive in this. And I'll tell you why, when I like had this switch, I'm like, wow, this is really shaking the boat. Cause I feel like after, after, by then I was a senior and after three years of navigating that specific space and like eight or six or however many years navigating the previous spaces, it just became like, I guess like a fish in water kind of just like, okay, this is how I'm resisting. And resistance is just my everyday occurrence. So I'm not thinking too much of it. But when that week happened, either a student or uh, I don't want to be too speculative, but I'm going to say a student. I also want to say maybe faculty or staff member, but I'm pretty certain it was a student. Um, I'm not allegedly, allegedly, <laughs> uh, like took pictures of the, like the installation I made and took the written materials I made and sent it to this far right wing Catholic website um, called Church Militant. Um, and they wrote up this whole thing. I mean, they they borderline were saying my name, but didn't, you know, couldn't really. Um, and I just remember reading through the comments, all these like homophobic and anti-queer comments and like also kind of anti-Semitic too, <laughs> which is just like not surprising, but um, so it was in that moment where I really realized, I guess more concretely outside of the bubble that I was in in the fish and water situation that I was in that just simply by being in this space and just articulating my needs as a, as a young queer person in development who needs to be educated on their history uh, was transgressive. But I'm also thinking of different assignments I did in my like religion classes that were kind of, I, I am going back, I would never do them again because they were really, not never do them again, but like um, kind of, uh, pushing the limits, I'll put it that way, of what is okay to have an, okay, in air quotes, uh, of what should or shouldn't be in a classroom, and kind of like provocative, but yeah. I want to take you on a little bit of a different direction, I guess. You spoke a little bit about your high school experience. I'm wondering maybe from then till now, what guides your activism? Ah, uh, that's a great question. See, I think in high school and even here, I, even when I was little, I felt really called to, to justice as a concept. I would be like, that's not right. Um, Naya's getting more juice than me. That per not gonna get any more food. No, that's not right. Um, or just even in, in middle school, just I probably should thank Tumblr for this one. Just like the Tumblr talking points that I would use and all these other things. So I feel like justice has been a, a thread or a calling for me. Um, and even my name of like biblically the Melchizedek in the Bibles were either like leaders or fighters. My middle name, Judah, um, a fighter too. So I've often thought about in my, in my name, but also like a spiritual, um, like, like universal type thing of like my calling to be doing the work of justice. Um, and then in high school, how did I do? High school, that was, in, that was out of necessity. That was because there was nothing for someone like me. Like, I felt like there was always a space where I, and even to this day, always spaces where I have to conditionally um, think about it as contracts, right? Um, like negotiate parts of myself to be in the space. And I didn't want that for other people. I, my mantra in my head, of like mentoring other queer people or other people of color, other people who shared identities with Milo. It was like, um, what happened to me shouldn't happen to anyone else like ever again. And 
that was the calling and that was that was that was doing the work and I wanted to do the work even if it like cost me sleep cost me like being healthy cost me like having like a normal high school experience and and I knew that just simply because of my identity is I can have a normal high school experience right but that was that was the calling in high school but I learned really quickly well I knew (laughs) really quickly that that was not sustainable and as much as I'm called and love to do this work like something isn't right here Malkaja like and that the missing part was definitely reciprocal love or a loving community. And coming here to Skidmore, I I came to Skidmore for IGR largely. Uh, and I felt the same calling for the social justice work. It was just like, I have the skills, I believe in this, I know that other people want this and I am ready to go dive in head first. And it is something that like, that I can't imagine my life without, really. I think that is the, I, in, in the black church, people are like, oh, um, the, whole, the spirit is moving me, right? Like the Holy Spirit's talking through me or like she caught the spirit or he caught the spirit or whatever. Um, and whenever I am speaking or leading something uh, that has to do with social justice or just the collective work of love, I really feel that spiritual connection with the people I'm doing with, with the chills and that like overwhelming sense of um, joy. And and yes, it's joy, but also it can be deeply sad. I'm thinking a lot about the the dialogues uh, that I facilitated with, one was with you and one was the mirror last semester and thinking about like how fatigued, how like physically tired I was, but like how emotionally and spiritually filled I was. So I'm thinking of doing this work as in at this point in my life is twofold, right? Like, yes, I, this is the, the things that call me, that made me happy, that, that I love doing, that I can't imagine being Malkaja without, like it's, it's in my name, it's in my history, but I can't, like do that at the cost of practicing love for myself or practicing or finding a community that keeps me sustained. Yeah. And I want to push you a little bit on this further. You talked a little bit about spiritual connections with people you may be in community with. I'm wondering where you see the sacred or sacred things in your approach to how you incorporate your queerness or other identities with your activism. I think it is the, the sacred is found in the tenderness and like the realness. I don't know, there's a, in, in ball culture, there's like the idea of realness and realness has a lot to do with like passing as either as like cis or heterosexual or of a certain class or economic set, you know, all of that. Um, but I think of realness in this sense, is just like standing in one's truth and that is what I find so sacred. It's like that breakthrough moment where you see someone like, aha, like I, I'm thinking a lot about, again, I keep calling upon these dialogues. I feel like they were formative moments for me. Just like having someone be like, I've never spoken this ever to anyone, but I'm talking about this now. And that deeply hurt me. Cause I'm like, wow, this person never felt uh, held in a way where they felt vindicated by these experiences to share. 
I'm happy I'm providing that, but that's still sad that like saddening in a way that they have never gotten that. But the sacred is in those moments where people can speak what's on their hearts and articulate pain and articulate the joy or articulate the, the unknowing that has to do with us navigating these systems, A, as marginalized people, but also like even domination culture affects us all, albeit in varying degrees based on our positionalities. But I feel like me as a black queer person that the sacred has always been found in vulnerability and others' vulnerability, but also in my own vulnerability. Because I feel like when you're, when you, uh, I'm trying to remember the exact, I mean, do I have the book around me? Because I don't, um, I really don't, but there's a, um, in the, in the, I think it's the preface, but, or maybe before the preface, but it's just like the epigraph or something like that, that comes before a book and they dedicate it to someone and that, and oh, I have it right here, I'll read it. Um, I think about this in my personal romantic relationships, but also in the work that I do. It's um, it's a passage from the Song of Solomon. And I couldn't tell if she's talking about like the book Song of Solomon from uh, Toni Morrison, or if she's talking about like the biblical text, Song of Solomon, because I'm pretty sure that's a biblical text. But you know, it's been a minute since Lokaija has been the biblical scholar uh, that he once was, but uh, I found him, uh, okay, here we go. Uh, I found him whom my soul loves. I held him and would not let go, let him go to holding on to knowing again, that moment of rapture of recognition where we could face one another as we really are stripped of artifice and pretense, naked and not, not ashamed. So that last part about the um, stripped of artifice and pretense, naked and not ashamed. That's what he'll throw. And that is what I find, I'm getting emotional. That is what I find really sacred about the work is stripping every, everything we were taught to be ashamed of or not to speak of or to, uh, silences. Um, we had deeply ingrained and just like coughing them up, spitting them out and making space for, for, for the new and for healing. That's what I find sacred about the work. There's often this assumption today that queer religious folk maybe don't have a full commitment to the queer community because of their religious commitment or that queer people of faith don't have a full commitment to the religious community because of their queerness. And that often leaves queer religious people. And I don't really like the term on the margins, but mm -hmm. on the outsides of, you know, maybe religious communities or queer communities. What do you think it would mean to bring queer people of faith into conversations in religion and into conversations with activism? I think that goes back to my, when I talked about conditional belonging, like that feeling of a contractual, 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 <laughs> contractual obligation, um, where you have to, to be in this certain active space, you have to relinquish your ties to religion and spirituality, to be in this certain, like, as you said, to be in this certain religious space, you have to relinquish control or access to your queerness. That's such an interesting visual. Just the contract moment, imagine. That's kind of what we're doing. But I think that we should allow for the complexities that both of these things hold. Um, but I think we get into the 
this circular game of, of like purity test of what makes someone the right kind of activist and what makes someone the not, not right kind of activist or social justice person or person doing the work. Like I do think we should have standards and beliefs of what things we will and will not stand for, but to totally negate the, the, the knowledge and wisdom that comes from spiritual practices, the sustainable and, and fulfilling tools and, and activities that come from spiritual practices, I think is, 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 is a mistake. Because I, if I can attest to anything in my life, especially at my time at Skidmore, I, I feel like I have, a lot of my leadership has been, has, has, has a lot of language rooted in spirituality and the idea of universal love and did it and all these things. So I feel like we have to allow for that complexity, but also not, hmm. so this is a good question, question Rachel. Uh, I'll give it to you. Because um, I don't want it to totally be like, yes, we must allow for the complexity, but we also need to interrogate like, the, when we invest in these institutions, what other things are we investing in and the historical legacies of these institutions and all these other things. So I feel like this is a yes and for me, like, yes, um, uh, this is a fundamental belief for, of Malkaj, is like any identity you hold close and near and dear to your heart, you have to be able to thoroughly interrogate it and interrogate why you identify with this and what are the implications of when you identify with this. So if I identify strongly as a religion and I am, I, I claim that and I own that, I also need to be able to claim and own all of the maybe pernicious histories of that religion. Um, also maybe the continuous um, harm that these institutions may be inflicting on folks or the historical legacies that continue on today. So I understand this, this the skepticism from folks and who are doing social justice work, which is like these institutions have inflicted so much damage, why are you still invested? But that that critique shouldn't be uh, no, implicit in that critique shouldn't be it shouldn't be the practices that go along with spirituality and religion should be thrown out as well, if that makes some sort of sense. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And specifically thinking about, you know, the work of James Baldwin and thinking about adopting Christianity in the United States um, often means adopting, you know, institutional racism and white supremacy. And how do queer people of faith navigate, especially white folk? navigate having a queer identity and also having adopting a religion such as Christianity that has been historically oppressive to certain groups of people and I think that's an important navigation to make but I also think that when we do think of queer people of faith you know we're interested in certain kinds of stories we're interested in maybe the gay couple uh, the gay white couple down in some southern state in the United States who maybe be involved deeply in their church, but we aren't as invested in other stories. Maybe that be queer folk who get off to images of Jesus or, or the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence who parody, you know, um, the institution of Catholicism and nuns um, by using drag and their approach to Catholicism. So just like everything you said, I guess, aligns with kind of what people are we picking to fit these stories or 
who are the archetypes that specifically in relation to identities that fit these stories. But I'm wondering, specifically your time at Skidmore, um, you mentioned this earlier, but have you felt that there is a spiritual fragmentation among people maybe in your circles? And what I mean by this is that queer folk who maybe grew up in oppressive religious settings um, to their queer identity kind of lose their religion or spirituality as they navigate their queer identity. I know you kind of stated that you maybe didn't navigate this phenomenon at the beginning of our interview, but I'm wondering if you have any advice um, to people navigating the phenomenon of kind of losing your spiritual religious identity or feeling that being queer means the loss of this identity for you. As I, as my life went on, I eventually went to high school. I feel like I definitely lost, like, not, you know, I wouldn't say lost because my religious practices or spiritual practices became aligned with the social justice work that I was doing. And that in a way was my spiritual and religious work. It didn't look the way I thought it did, but this is going to say that you have to, if you're feeling that conflict, you have to, or from my experiences, what was helpful, what has been helpful is just being like religious and spiritual practices don't have to look the way that they did when they were taught to you. Like I felt extremely disconnected in mass in the masses we had in high school, uh, extremely disconnected. Just, it felt like there was no passion. Even when I would go to temple, I didn't feel that connection at some point in my like high school life. And I think, I don't know if this is because like all adolescents feel this like rebellion and da da da, but the rituals didn't feel, like everyone didn't feel as deeply invested in the rituals. And rituals are important to spiritual religious practice. Really rituals, rituals are important to the social life in general. So when, when you feel this sort of like disconnect you want to retreat or you don't want to process. And that happened to me. Like, I was like, okay, I feel this disconnect. I definitely didn't rel like uh, relinquish or like uh, run from like identifying as in, within a certain religion or with a certain spiritual practice, but I didn't really have it all down pat. But all I knew was like, I don't, I don't, I don't gel with this. I don't gel with this. So I'm sort of like, this feels like I'm in the wilderness, right? I definitely knew I wasn't, uh, I didn't believe in any, spiritual uh, doc I definitely knew that was not a thing you know I guess that's a double negative this is all to say I didn't totally stop myself from identifying with anything or stop any religious practices but everything felt like you do this because school is prescribing it you do this because your parents are telling you to do this you're lighting these candles on this certain day because your parents are telling you and all these other things um and my advice to people would be try to find what's sacred in your life and what is bringing you joy and what feels like the spirit is talking through you and the spirit could look many different things and try to integrate those into your practices um the one thing i will say about the religious things that i did in high school the thing that i often come back to uh are the songs i did choir uh like almost every fucking queer person in a religious high school i did choir um and the songs definitely had a uh, like we are called to do certain things. And that, that was one of the songs. I don't want to sing it. I, I'm not warmed up. I'm very vocal fry right now, but I may do a little rendition, but essentially it's just, we are called to act with justice. We are called to love tenderly. 
we are called to serve one another, to walk humbly with God. So those songs meant a lot to me because I'm just like, I'm called, this is something I'm called and feel gravitated to. And these are my principles to, to, act, with, to, to act towards justice, to be rooted in love. So as hard as it might be to be a la carte sometimes, when you're developing, when I have been and still continue to develop my own religion, spiritual, spiritual practices, I'm gonna take what works for me and then not really take what's not working. You know what is working for me? Um, the singing, these songs, these certain things, but you know what's not working for me? The guilt, <laughs> the Catholic guilt. <laughs> so I'll, I'll go out the window. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I'm wondering, you know, you kind of touched on this a little bit, but what uh, religious or spiritual factors do you feel like shaped your queer identity? I'm not sure if any religious factors have shaped my formation of my queerness. And I've never gotten a question like that. So thank you. It's, nothing, it has, it's not something I deeply reflected on because I think maybe because I'm so deeply socialized to disassociate these things, but I may be wondering, you know, for queer folk, there's often this, when I say religious, it comes with institutional practices or maybe an institutional um, picture. Maybe if we don't use the word religious, maybe we use spiritual. What does that have any sort of more connection? Um, there's definitely in the queer community, this deeper connection with the word spirituality versus religious. And maybe there's a spiritual factor that speaks out to you i'm not sure if there does but oh it is when you when you change that word i was like oh but then i thought oh the all the all the all the things tied up with religious so that is something that's on my mind now but the type of like spiritual fulfillment that i can get when wearing like I guess gender affirming clothes or speaking a certain ways or being with people who I don't have to have that condition, conditional or contractual obligation with feels spiritual. It feels ethereal. It feels otherworldly and getting chills talking about it. So that means it's the truth. <laughs> well, the truth for me, at least it's the truth for me. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's those moments that feel really spiritual. And to the point of saying, where we're stripped of artifice and it's just you, that, that those are the spiritual moments where I don't have to feel like I have to be on. I like being on, but I don't have to feel like I have to be on in a guarded safety way where I don't have to think, be 10 steps ahead of everyone in the room to ensure that my own safety and ensure the safety of people like me. No, like I can be on in a way that's fun and performative and people get that this is fun and performative. That is this, those are the spiritual moments. Those are the, the grounding. And that's so weird I say grounding while I'm still saying it's like this ethereal and otherworldly plane, but grounding in a way because it makes you feel at home in your body. It makes you feel at home and in, and, and, and in a place in a loving community. And there are very few moments in my life where I've truly felt that, uh, that moment of like, ah, uh, you know? And I'm thinking, is that just by nature of my identities where like often those queer spaces are, are, are gonna be terrible for people of color um, or in like sometimes in POC spaces, like it's, it's um, focusing on the experiences of like cishet men of color 
and you know so it's very rarely do I get to like be in a space where that spiritual plane is really unlocked uh but there's also and I'm thinking of theory and praxis in terms of like queerness right like I don't think of queerness simply as like as an umbrella term I think it is a socio-political identity that involves like theorizing and praxis and also just like being invested in a united struggle towards the end of domination and oppression. So I'm thinking about like the type of spiritual fulfillment or like aha that I felt reading queer theorists or black feminist theorists or, or black queer writers and seeing art and films made by black queer people. That is a spiritual experience. That is what looking back when I first saw, I saw Tongues and Tide in Moonlight in my American, uh, Queering of America class. I had avoided Moonlight, like the play, not because I didn't think it was good or anything like that. It was just that because in my high school, like <laughs> uh, a student, what was he? The Dean of Students, he was talking, I was late to school. That was a thing, you know? I, I know you're not surprised at me being late to school. <laughs> so I would be late to school to get my coffee in the morning. I, would have, I had not been seen ever without a you know Starbucks coffee in my hand since my first year of high school. Um, that was, that was, that was the brand, that was the image. Um, and I'm sitting in his office and we're talking about the Oscars. Cause you know, I'm obviously going to love the Oscars. Well, he wasn't wrong about that one. That's not that I, I love the Oscars, but, you know, I do, I love, I love a good film. And he was just like, assuming that I saw Moonlight and like, he was like, when I was watching Moonlight, like I was telling like, uh, the other Dean of Students that like, wow, imagine if that's like Malkaija, like that's how I imagined the, like the, the, the switch between the main character becoming like frail to buff. I'm like, what the hell? So I avoided it. But I eventually saw it in the class and uh, Tongues Untied is by Marlon Riggs, one of my favorite artists and biggest inspirations of all time. Uh, it was that spirit, I, I had to walk out. I had to walk out of, 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 of watching um, Moonlight, I think, because that was, that was the day after like some other stuff like a day after some other stuff happened in my life so I had to walk out but looking back that embodiment that feeling of being seen that aha moment that I felt in church back then was the same thing I felt watching that movie and yeah if anyone wants to watch a good movie tongues and tied is it yeah my last question for you Malkaja we've touched on this a little bit but as you know, maybe a queer person who identifies with spirituality or faith, how do you think um, queer people of faith move forward on creating an approach to queering religion or spirituality that accounts for networks of power and authority that exist in race, gender, socioeconomic status, and other marginalized identities at the intersection of sexuality? What I really mean by this is that in understanding how queer folk may be liberated by their spirituality, we must really move away from centering white, gay, Western men as the sole author of queer spiritual experiences. Um, what are your thoughts on that? I say yes. <laughs> I say yes, 100%. I think for me, I, I really want to speak in these grand sweeping ground, in these grand sweeping terms, but I really, I shan't. So I shan't. Um, for me, it's about starting what's sacred for me and what, what objects, what memories, what things make me feel like my full self and then going from there. 
the personal spiritual practices. And I think that's where we should all start. It's like, where in our personal lives do we see, do we see the light, either a divine light or a spiritual light or, or all these other things. And then we move out that scope to find a community of folks who feel the same, who, who feel the same type of pull and calling to doing a certain thing or, or love of a certain object or love of a certain practice. And from there we work through and try to establish community that is based on mutuality and love. And I think love is the, and is the opposite of, of like oppression and domination. And if you have that deep love and commitment for folks in your community, then you won't let domination and like rear its head in your practices. Like it's gonna come up because we're all socialized to believe so, but if we're all committed to these certain values and tenets of love, then we will work through as a community. So that's kind of where my head is at, just keeping love at the forefront of everything. Yeah. Well, Kajra, I think that is a perfect point to end. Thank you so much for your time today. Anytime. Thanks for listening today, y'all. As a reminder, you can help us keep doing this pro-democracy work by becoming a paid subscriber. Get ad-free listening, access to the 500-episode archive, a premium episode, and more. Go sign up now. It only takes a few clicks. www.axismundi.supercast.com. The link is in the show notes.